Luke chapter 17. Continue this morning in the book of Luke. We're just making our way chapter by chapter through this gospel. And so we've come into the teen chapters of the book of Luke. We find that Jesus is making his way steadfastly toward Jerusalem. Earlier in this book, we see it saying, He set his face toward Jerusalem. At that point in his ministry, there was a one-track mind. I'm going to Jerusalem. And he knew exactly why he was going there. He was going to Jerusalem where he would be welcomed with hosannas and a parade of people shouting out glory to God in the highest. He would be welcomed with honor. And days later, he would be crucified in shame. And as he set his face toward Jerusalem, he knew that the mission he had been given by his father that had been set out before the foundation of the world was that he would go to Jerusalem and that he would lay his body upon that cruel cross that was meant for sinners. And he who knew no sin of his own would become sin for us so that in Him we might have hope and life and joy and peace and all that He purchased for us at the cross. He had His face set toward Jerusalem because He knew what His Father had for Him to do there. He knew that in going to Jerusalem, He was going to purchase for us our forgiveness. He was going to attain for us something that we could not possibly hope to attain, which was the renewing and the restoring of our relationship with God. That which had been broken by sin in the garden all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, He was going to reclaim as He bowed His knee before the Father in a very different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and He won the battle that Adam and Eve lost. And that all of us have been losing ever since. The battle against sin and death. And so I want you to consider Christ as he has his face set toward Jerusalem. And along the road he pauses to teach his disciples about the very thing he was going to Jerusalem to gain. Today's theme is forgiveness. If you'll stand in honor of God's word, we're going to read... Luke 17, 1 through 10 this morning. Listen to Jesus' teaching about forgiveness. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. First command, verse 3. Pay attention to to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. You see, they understood this is hard stuff. 
Increase our faith, Lord. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? The implied answer is no. No master did that in Jesus' day. Instead, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Implied answer, yes, it's exactly the way the master-servant relationship operated in Jesus' day. In verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Implied answer, no. Masters did not thank their servants, they're just doing their job. So also, Jesus said in verse 10, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated this morning. Father, what we have to speak about today is hard. There is nothing easy about forgiveness. It is costly. It is painful. Forgiveness is a journey that many of us would rather not take, and yet we find here it is commanded that we walk this road. So teach us how to take the first steps this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled today's message, The Road to Forgiveness. Now, many who have studied Luke chapter 17 have not really understood what in the world is Luke trying to do here. It seems as though there's just a bunch of disconnected teachings that have all been thrown together. It's like Luke wanted to inc include these little snippets in his gospel, but he didn't really know what to do with them, so he just kind of just threw them all together here in Luke chapter 17. I, I don't think that's what happened. These are not a series of disconnected teachings. They're, in fact, very much connected. And it's in the connection that we find the very heart of what God wants us to see this morning. The, the common theme that we're going to look at today is this theme of forgiveness. And when I say from the very beginning this morning, I want us to view forgiveness as a road, as, as a process. Oftentimes when we think about forgiveness, we, we think about forgiveness as a, a one-and-done action, as a, as a point in time. And there is, there is a sense in which forgiveness is a point in time which you choose to forgive someone or choose to continue in unforgiveness. But I also want us to see this morning that what Jesus is laying before us very much relates to a road, a path, a, a process of forgiveness that the Lord is calling us into. And I want to show you how to take this journey this morning because I want you to understand this. The Lord uses hard language because He does not want us to misunderstand. Forgiveness is not optional for the follower of Jesus Christ. People of faith are people whose lives are characterized by forgiveness. 
and put the hard truths in front of you this morning. And I, help you, I want you to understand, I do not want to leave anything unsaid in this regard. If your life this morning is characterized by bitterness and unforgiveness, I want you to hear the warning of the Lord this morning that if you continue in that pathway, you will prove that you do not belong to Him and you have no part in His kingdom. You say, Pastor, that sounds harsh. It would be so unloving of me this morning to tell you anything different than what Jesus is telling you. That's why he says in verse 4, you must forgive. Not you might forgive or could forgive if you're feeling exceptionally gracious that day. No, forgiveness is a command of God. And I want you to see it this morning. George Herbert said, He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. And so as we think about this journey this morning, this, this road, this pathway of forgiveness, two things. I want you to picture Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem where he is going to purchase our forgiveness on our behalf. He is going to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To enable us then to do what we could not do before, which is to forgive. And so lest this bridge be broken, let's learn how to walk it today. Before we get to the how, let's talk about the why. Why is forgiveness necessary? Let me just lay it out as Jesus does. Forgiveness is necessary because the Father requires it. Because God the Father requires forgiveness. He requires us to forgive one another that the people of God, the people of faith, would be characterized. This would be a defining mark in our lives. Something that the world looks upon and does not understand. How can you forgive those scars, those wounds that are so deep in your life? And you can say to them, it's only by the grace of God. I cannot do this in my flesh. None of us can do what Jesus is calling us to do here in our flesh. This is only possible when the Spirit of God empowers you and the Word of God propels you for this work. The Father requires, if we go back to the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer given in Luke chapter 11. We're more familiar with the version given in Matthew chapter 6. But let me, let me show you this version of it, a, a shortened version of the model prayer in Luke chapter 11. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished praying, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw the power of Jesus' prayers and said, we want to be able to pray like that. And so Jesus said, pray like this. By the way, he's not saying pray these exact words. He's saying, here's a model for you. Here's an outline for you of what prayer, powerful, God-honoring prayer looks like. And here it goes. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So powerful praying begins with praising God, adoring Him for who He is. Powerful praying includes the confession of sin. Father, forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses, as we also forgive those who trespass against us. Powerful praying includes an elements of thanksgiving and supplication as we ask God for our daily bread, that he would provide for us and be our provider. But notice the connection here. Father, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted 
to us. Now, don't misunderstand. Don't get these things out of order. He is not encouraging us to pray, Father, you need to forgive me because I've forgiven those who sinned against me. You see, God's forgiveness of us has never hinged upon our forgiveness of others. You got the cart before the horse, if that's the way you're viewing this. It begins with God's forgiveness of us and that vertical relationship. Forgive us of our sins, Father. And then the result of that, the result of experiencing the grace of God is, now I can no longer continue to hold sin debt against others. It's the vertical forgiveness of God and His grace in our lives restoring the broken relationship between us and Him that enables us then to forgive others. God has not commanded you to do anything that He has not already done. So when He says you must forgive, it's because forgiveness lies at the very heart of God. And to refuse forgiveness is to refuse the very heart of God. God. He talks about temptation here. Saying to his disciples, temptations are sure to come. You think about the sin-saturated world in which we live, there are constant temptations. Even as we gather here for worship, there are temptations for our minds to be a thousand miles away from this place where we're opening the Word of God together. We're thinking about the lunch that is to come and the hard conversation we're going to have to have at work tomorrow morning. And we're so easily distracted. There's temptations on every side, even when we come into these places of worship. But that's not an excuse. He's not saying, well, temptations are common. They're everywhere. They're all the time in the sin-soaked world, so there's nothing you can do about it. No, here's a warning here. Notice it. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. There's a warning to the tempters. There's a warning to those who would lead others into the pathways of sin and death who would walk in the footsteps of Satan himself, who came to Adam and Eve in the garden and tempted her with that, with that forbidden fruit and, and, and drew them into sin. Now, they were responsible for their sin, but you'll notice very clearly the tempter shared in their condemnation. And there's a woe here. Woe to him. Woe to the one, the tempter. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Now, a millstone in that day, you can imagine a large uh, donut-shaped rock that would have taken three or four men to move. This is a large rock with a, a hole in the middle, and it would be used uh, to grind the grains in, in those days. This is a large stone, and the, and the picture was, imagine, imagine what it would be like if someone were to take that millstone and put it upon your shoulders and push you overboard into the sea. And imagine how that would drag you to the bottom of the ocean and you would die what for the Jew was the most unspeakable death. They were terrified of the sea. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll find them using the sea as a reminder of all the bad things in the world. The Jews were not seafaring people. They were not like the Vikings and others. They wanted to stay away from the sea. That's why they were so. They were even terrified of the Sea of Galilee, that little, what we would call a lake these days. They, they were terrified of that place. It was, it was a scary thing for them. And this was the scariest death imaginable that someone would put a millstone on your shoulders and sink you to the bottom of the sea for you 
to suck in water and die your last, your last moments. But notice what he says here. There's something far worse than that. I don't know what you could think of as the worst possible death imaginable, but there is something far worse than any physical death in this world. His point is this, being cast into the sea in this way would be preferable to being the tempter, to being the one who causes others to sin. There's a warning here. If we are those who are leading others into sin, this is an, a, war, a warning to the one who is tempting others into an adulterous relationship. This is a warning to the false teacher that is proclaiming something different than what God's word has to say. This is a warning to the one who engages in unsavory business practices for his own profit and draws his employees into the same kinds of activities. There's a warning for the tempter here. Yes, our sin is deserving of condemnation, but in a greater way, there is a greater condemnation reserved for those who engage in temptation themselves, who walk in the very pathways of Satan, and he wants us to understand it. And so back to the model prayer when he says, Father, lead us not into temptation. There's also the implication, and may we not be tempters of others. May we not be tempted, but may we not also be tempters. There's a great danger here, and it's nothing to mess around with. And then he begins to talk about forgiveness. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. The idea here, put your life under the microscope. Examine the details of your life. Don't pretend like this doesn't apply to you. The moment you think that the, what he's about to say doesn't apply to you, you are the one the most in need of these words. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's hard stuff. There is nothing easy about what we're about to talk about, but it is so necessary that we get this. Let me lay before you just two pictures of, of what I think Jesus is trying to show us. I want to compare for just a moment what I would call the sin cycle and the sin seesaw. The sin cycle and the sin seesaw. The sin cycle is right here in Jesus' words. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother, one of your fellow Christians, one of your fellow followers of Jesus Christ sins, this is just general sin, you say, well, that's general sin. Next verse, if he sins against you, personal sin, you've been hurt by his sin, his lies, deceit, whatever it might be. Your brother sins, rebuke him, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, you must forgive him. There's, there's a five-fold process here I want to call the sin cycle. I'm going to put it up there on the screen for you so you can see it. A five-step process here in dealing with sin in a biblical manner. It's sin, first of all, is rebellion. At the bottom of the, of, the, of the upswing there, you begin to see this word rebel. And we're reminding ourselves that sin is rebellion against a holy God. Sin is not, to be a sinner is not, I'm basically a good person who just does a few minor bad things that God needs to come along and sweep up my life a little bit and make me better. 
That's not the picture. No, sin is outright rebellion against a holy God. So when David in Psalm 51, after having committed adultery and murder, prays, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned, what he was recognizing is ultimately all sin is sin against a holy God and deserving of condemnation and God's wrath for eternity. So what's the hope? Well, the hope is that the rebel will receive a godly rebuke. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, this is not a rebuke of condemnation. This is a rebuke that is seeking restoration. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, look at the rest of the picture. What are you aiming at? That you're aiming at repentance and forgiveness, restoration. So if your brother sins against you, if he is rebelling against the the command of God and you've been hurt by that, or even if you've not been hurt, you just see your brother in sin, you see him going astray, you, you see him following after the patterns of this world. If you see that, then go and rebuke him. And if then he repents, then forgive him. Then, and this word of forgiveness is a word of restoration. It's bringing him back into the family. It's restoring the relationship that's been broken by sin. You say, well, what if he sins again? Repeat. He sins again, then you rebuke him again. He repents, you restore him. And the cycle continues to go. And you say, well, this doesn't seem very good. First of all, what if he doesn't repent? We're going to come to that. But some would look at this and say, well, wait a minute. This just seems like a recipe for encouraging people to sin. Now you need to go over to Romans chapter 6 and see what the Apostle Paul said about the relationship between sin and grace. He said, we all know, basically I'm going to paraphrase here, we all know that grace covers our sin and grace is a good thing, so shouldn't we sin more to get more grace? No, by no means, he says. He uses the strongest negative that could be used in the Greek language to say there's no way that if you do that, you don't understand grace. If you use God's forgiveness as a license to continue in sin, you do not understand God's forgiveness. Perhaps someone here this morning needs to hear that if you are using God's forgiveness as some kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card that you might continue in your sin, if you're using God's forgiveness as a license to sin, you do not understand His forgiveness, and you are proving that you do not belong to Him. See, Pastor, that sounds harsh. I'm just trying to lay before you the warnings of the Word of God. So here's the process. Your brother sins against you, rebels against the Word of God. You come and rebuke him. What does that mean, Pastor? It means you come and show him from the Word of God where he is straying from the will of God. You come and show him where he's going astray and urge him to come to repentance. And if he repents, then you rejoice greatly because the relationship has been restored and sin has been covered by the blood of Christ poured out at the cross. You rejoice in that moment as you restore that brother or sister to a right relationship with you and with 
the Lord. And then if sin creeps its ugly head up again, and it will. In fact, where he says here, if your brother sins against you, maybe a better translation would be when your brother sins against you, because it happens, doesn't it? Church family. Even in this place where we are seeking to follow Jesus Christ, doesn't it happen that we get at odds with one another because of sin? Now, sometimes it's misunderstandings and miscommunications, but sometimes it's just outright sin. Someone says something that wounds at your heart. And what Jesus is saying is this, I'm giving you the remedy. I'm giving you the medicine. And you're either going to take the remedy that I'm giving to you, or you're going to reject the remedy and face the consequences. Again, God is not asking us to do anything here that he has not already done. This is a picture of how the gospel deals with sin. We have all rebelled against God. And in his grace, he has given us a godly rebuke in his word. He has shown us what is good and right and true. And he has called us to walk in these ways. And if we repent of our rebellion against him, has he not restored us to right relationship with him? Has he not clothed us in his grace and in his righteousness? Has he not made good on his promise? When, we're faith, when, we are, when we are able to, by faith, confess our sins to Him, is He not faithful and just and forgives us of our sins and cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness? That 1 John 1, 9 promise is not just a promise related to those who need salvation. It's a related to those who, of us who need sanctification as well. They need to grow in godliness and grace. You see, here's what we would rather do. He's showing us the solution to our sin problem. How to fix it when we've been sinned against. But instead of riding the sin cycle by which we might progress in holiness and grow in Christ-likeness and move closer and closer to His kingdom and farther and farther from the kingdom of this world, for many of us, we would much rather ride the sin seesaw. And it looks like this. Now don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. It looks really fun. The sin seesaw looks really fun, doesn't it? But by it, you will get nowhere. You see, the sin cycle allows you to make progress. just like a bicycle. It allows you to make progress. You're moving forward in your faith as you deal with sin in your life and in the lives of others. But the sin seesaw never does that. So, see, what, what happens is we cut out the heart of God's remedy for sin. And here's what it looks like. Someone sins against you, and you repeat it to everyone that'll listen. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that it's probably not going to get a lot of amens this morning, but I'm going to say what Vody Bakum often says, if you can't say amen, you ought to at least say ouch. This is what happens right here. I'm not talking about out there. We're going to talk about family business for a few minutes, folks. I'm not talking about what happens out there in the world. It's bad enough out there, but sinners act as sinners are supposed to act until the grace of God rescues them from their sin. We are claiming to have been rescued by our sin, and yet so many of us continue to ride this sin seesaw. Someone sins against us, and we repeat it. 
to anybody that will listen. We want to tell everybody about how much they hurt us and all the things that they did and said and how stupid they are and how much they're deserving of the wrath of God. And we forget that His grace for such a worm as I. Not for such a worm as He. Not for such a worm as she. For such a worm as I. And here's what I want to say to us, church. It's time for us to get off the seesaw. It's time for us to get off this seesaw. I want to tell you about one way that I believe we can do that. We started something about five years ago with our deacons. And when we were in the midst of one of the several different episodes that we've been through over the last several years, we began to talk about how do we get out of this habit Someone coming to us and they're speaking ill of someone else and, and, and we just let it, kind of let it all come in and we don't really, know, we don't really do anything with it but just listen. We, we may not even affirm it but we give an ear to someone tearing down another brother or sister. So what we decided to do was we decided to agree with one another to what we call our 24-hour rule. Our deacons have been operating into this. I'm not going to say perfectly but have been operating into this for the last five years. And we have watched in the times when we have honored what we've agreed to, God has blessed that and restored things that were radically broken. The 24-hour rule goes like this. If someone comes to you and is seeking to speak ill uh, of someone else in the church, perhaps it's a, a church leader, another member of the church, and they're coming to you and they are laying out how much they've been hurt by this person or, or, or that group of leaders or, or whatever it might be, they're coming to you and, and seek, seeking to speak ill of someone else, this is what you do. You say, have you spoken with that person about your concern?" Now, what's going to happen nine times out of ten? Well, no. They wouldn't listen to me. Well, no, I couldn't possibly go and talk to them about that. What is Jesus saying? If your brother sins against you, go take out a billboard and write his sins for everybody to see, right? No. Rebuke him. And sometimes that looks like somebody coming to you and talking ill of someone else, and you just simply say to them, have you spoken to that person? Oh, no, you haven't? Well, here's how the 24-hour rule works. Now you've got 24 hours. The Bible encourages... Here we say, where did you all get that from? The Bible encourages us, don't let, your, don't let uh, the sun go down on your anger. But the picture is, deal with it as soon as possible. So we feel like 24 hours is a reasonable amount of time. You have 24 hours now to go and talk face-to-face -face with the person you should have been talking to when you came and talked to me. Now listen, here's the grace of it. I'll go with you. You don't have to go alone. If, if you're too embarrassed or too angry or too afraid you'll get out of control, if there, whatever it is, I'll go with you and we can have that conversation together, but we can't continue in this conversation until that one happens. And so let's go and let's talk to this brother. Let's talk to this sister and let's try to resolve this together. I want to tell you, church, without any hesitation, 99% of every problem we've had in this church in the last decade would have been absolved completely had we just done what Jesus is telling us. Every one of them. 
would rather do is just ride the seesaw. Sin, repeat. Sin, repeat. Sin, repeat. And sometimes in so doing, we find ourselves in danger of the millstone. Because in repeating someone else's sin, you are laying a trap of temptation for that brother or sister to whom you are relaying that information. And Jesus himself is saying, woe to you. You don't know what you're messing with. Do you not recognize from Proverbs chapter 6 that it says the Lord hates those who sow seeds of discord among the brothers. We ought to love one another enough to say, hey, have you had that conversation with the person that you're tearing down? You've not? Okay, let's go do that now. Let's get this right. Let's stop riding the seesaw. Maybe that can become a phrase around here. Hey, brother, sister, let's get off the seesaw and let's get on the sin cycle. Let's make some progress here in godliness. Let's look at the words of the Lord. He's showing us how to defeat sin and death in our midst. He's showing us how to redeem what's been so radically broken. But as long as we're riding the seesaw, we'll never get there. Again, some would say, hey, Pastor, well, what, what if they don't repent? What if I go and bring the godly rebuke and they just continue in their sin? Guess what? Jesus has instructions for that too. They're found in Matthew 18. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me say this to you again. I believe without a doubt if we were to do Matthew 18, 15, 99% of the time, we would never have to go to Matthew 18, 16. But it's because we don't do Matthew 18, 15, the one-on-one, -on -one, bringing the godly rebuke, talking through the sin issues that have caused disruption in our relationships. Because we sin, repeat, because we take their sin and broadcast it to as many people as will listen to us, we continue to ride this seesaw of destruction. So what if he doesn't repent? If he listens, first of all, what have you gained? You've won your brother. It's not about winning the argument. It's about winning the brother. It's about desiring to see the relationship restored. But what if he doesn't listen? And then take one or two others along with you to gang up on him, right? No, not to gang up on him. That's the wrong mentality. Take along one or two others that every matter may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here's the picture. This is an Old Testament principle that in the court of law, you couldn't be condemned by just one witness in the Old Testament days. It required at least two or three that every matter be, may be established. And the, and the idea the idea that's coming out of that, uh, that here is... You're, you're not taking along one or two others to beat the brother down. You're taking along, first of all, the matter needs to be established. Was this a sin issue or was it not? Perhaps the brother didn't repent because he didn't believe he'd really sinned. And perhaps those other brothers might go along, and as they're piecing through this thing, they may realize there really wasn't a sin issue here to begin with. You may have been offended, but you were wrongly offended, and so then that can be clarified. The matter can be established, or perhaps... It's for them to be able to help that brother to see his sin. Either way, it's a loving rebuke brought in gentleness and faith, believing that God can fix what we have broken. What if he doesn't listen then? Go on. If he refuses to listen even to them, then tell it to the church. You say, Pastor, what does that look like? We're going to start doing that on Sunday morning? 
I'm going to be real honest with you, church. I don't know what it looks like because I've never seen it. This is a portion of my of God's word that it breaks my heart to see. I have never been a part of a church that has practiced this. And you say, well, if we started to do this kind of stuff, people would, would call us unloving. See, what they don't understand is this. The Father disciplines those He loves. Which is more loving? To evade discipline out of some sense of people-pleasing and self-preservation? Or to bring discipline in the hopes of seeing repentance and restoration? But you say, Pastor, that's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Following Jesus is hard. Whoever told you that it was easy lied to you. You say, what if he doesn't repent even as it's brought to the whole church? If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Write him off, right? Three chances and you're out, dude. Is that what he's saying? No. How are we as the people of God called to relate to Gentiles and tax collectors? We are relating to this person now as one who we are seeing. He's in need of the gospel. We're no longer going to have sweet Christian fellowship with him because he is showing that he doesn't belong to Christ. Because of his unrepentance, because of his lack of returning to the Lord, he is proving that he doesn't belong to the people of God. And so we are going to that brother saying, you need Christ. You say, Pastor, that sounds really judgmental. No, it's just Jesus' instructions. And what would we see God do if out of love for Him we began to walk in obedience? Jesus said in John 14, 15, Church, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He didn't say if you love me, you'll show up at church on Sunday morning. He didn't say if you love me, you'll carry your Bible around. If you love me, you'll memorize Scripture. No, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And some of His commandments are hard. This forgiveness is hard. Do you not think that it was costly for the God of all the universe to place the sins of all mankind upon His perfect Son? For Jesus to bear the weight of the sins of all humanity, to die in our place, was that not costly? And yet we will hold against one another the smallest of offenses. And we'll get on the sin seesaw. And we'll do sin repeat ad nauseum. And we will watch the destruction that comes every time. And church, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're not going to get through the rest of the notes this morning. Some of you guys are going to be offended by the fact that there's leftover blanks. Deal with it. I'm ever so serious, church. I believe God is calling us to a new season where we're going to get off the sin seesaw and get on the sin cycle and start riding to the glory of God. And it's going to be hard and our muscles are going to ache. 
And there will be moments like in a group, right, there's this thing called drafting where you can fall in behind someone and kind of get out of the wind and and, and go a little easier. There's going to be moments when you're going to need to get behind a brother or sister who's up ahead of you a little bit and draft for a while because you can't go any farther. There's going to be moments when we're going to look at one another and we're we're not going to know what to do with the mess that's there, but we're going by God's grace to follow his instructions. And when we follow his instructions, here's what I know. When we follow his instructions and we get off the seesaw and get on to the cycle and do things God's way, then God does things that we wouldn't have imagined could have taken place. But as long as we keep doing things the world's way, we're going to keep getting the world's results. I'm just ready for something different. So here's what I want to commend to you, church. Would you consider taking up that 24-hour rule with your pastor? I'm not inviting us into any kind of legalism here. I'm just inviting you to consider a biblical principle of dealing with sin and the harm that comes to the one another stuff in our midst. We would begin to deal with that in a biblical and godly way. Here's what I want to urge you to. The next time someone comes to you and begins to tear down another brother or sister in this place or a group of brothers or sisters or a group of leaders or whoever it might be, that your first response in the greatest of love would be, have you spoken with them about what you're sharing with me? And if their response is no, I want to urge you to say, let's go right now. that we not allow sin to have a foothold in our midst any longer. That we not give the devil a foothold for more destruction. And that we give full opportunity for the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God 